Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible does not take a page, a paragraph, a participle off. Every single syllable of God's Word is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and is sufficient for everything that we need in order to live a life of faithful obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of Scripture, even those parts of it that bore you in the Old Testament, are worthwhile for our lives. And yet, when we come to the book of Romans, we see um, Scripture at its scripturiest, <laughs> if you'll permit me. Uh, we, we see uh, what many consider to be the high water mark of Scripture. The reformer Martin Luther um, is said to have commented that Romans is, Romans is the most important book of the entire Bible. John Piper, an author, that I respect a great deal, says it's the most important theological work that has ever been written. And so if it is indeed the high watermark, if it is the, the, the apex of Scripture, why has it taken me 14 and a half years as the lead pastor of Blue Valley to get around to it? Well, I don't know. Frankly, I really don't know. I don't know why it's taken us this long to get to it, but I do know why we are doing it today and why we're going to spend the next better part of the year going through this book. It's because the last 20 months, even longer than that, have seen us as, as the church in America, really even the church worldwide, divide over a host of things. I mean, we know what those things are. We, we, we have experienced that division. And, and frankly, some division has been necessary. I know it's difficult to talk about division as being necessary, but some of that division and that conflict has been necessary to, to root out doctrinal drift or to expose deeply entrenched sin. I mean, sometimes that's, that has to happen. But, but most of the things that have divided us have been petty, have been shallow, and quite frankly, won't matter that long after we die. And the purpose of going through the book of Romans, this particular church here, which is essentially just functioning as a reset of our church after all of these interruptions these last two years or so, is so that we can gather around and feast on that which ultimately unites us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it unites us in such profound ways that we probably haven't even given it adequate consideration, and we're going to get that opportunity over these next uh, many months. So if you would, please, I hope you found Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to walk through this introduction at times, word by word, um, in order to be able to understand exactly what Paul is doing in introducing himself to these people, and then we're going to step back from it at the end and uh, see what, what we need to do with it today. So let's begin. Paul, let's stop right there. <laughs> I told you it was going to be word by word, and we're, we made it one word in. Who is Paul? Well, Paul is first introduced to us on the pages of Scripture in Acts chapter 8. He is introduced to us as public enemy number one of Christianity. 
He was uh, steeped in the Jewish tradition and was used by the Jewish leadership as their kind of hired terrorist, really, uh, of the churches in the region, rooting out the various Christian groups that were meeting, dragging women, dragging men out of these places into prison, and we assume, at times, even to their death. He loathed everything about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then the resurrected Jesus intercepted Paul on one of his terrorist missions and revealed himself to be the risen Savior that he was. Paul's life was radically changed, and he went from being public enemy number one to being perhaps the greatest champion that Christianity has ever known. And he is the one who is writing this letter, and by stating his name at the very beginning, we need to understand that in, in ways that are, are probably more significant than most of the books that are attributed to him, he is really introducing himself. Because you see, in a lot of the other books that Paul is uh, to have written in the New Testament, he is writing to churches that he's established or he is writing to churches that he has visited. But he neither established the Roman church or has visited the Roman church. He has felt compelled by God, and all of this is recorded for us in the book of Acts, to, to go to Rome as kind of an end game for world evangelization in his mind. And so he needed these people to know who he was, and his reputation had gone before him. They, they knew who Paul was, but he needed them to understand what he was all about and everything that's going to flow, really, until we get to verse 18 of chapter 1, is Paul introducing himself and introducing his ministry. Paul, he says, next uh, thing he says is that he is a servant. Let's stop there. That's cleaned up. That's a little tidy for our modern ears. The first century audience would have heard a more difficult word. They would have heard the word slave. Paul, a slave. Now, to be sure, there are some differences between the practice of first century slavery and the brutal practice that characterized much of the first few centuries of American history. For one thing, it wasn't based on race. Uh, for another thing, it was uh, an opportunity in the first century world for a slave to either be granted freedom or to obtain their freedom. So there were some marked differences uh, between uh, centuries later practice of slavery in the Western world and in the first century. But make no mistake about it, it was brutal. You lacked autonomy over your own body. You lacked autonomy over your own life. No one introduced themselves as a slave to communicate a favorable situation. Paul says, I am a slave. It's shocking. And then he says to whom he's a slave, of Christ Jesus. Let's stop right there. Most of the time when we are confronted with those two words together, they are reversed, Jesus Christ. But Paul, unusually here, goes Christ Jesus. He leads with the word Christ. Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. If the literal translation of it came into our language, it would mean anointed one. So he's saying, I am Paul, I am a slave to the anointed one, Jesus, communicating what? He's saying, functionally, I am Paul, a slave to King Jesus. 
This is how he introduces himself. I, Paul, am a slave to King Jesus. What does King Jesus want him to do? He says he has been called to be an apostle. The most basic understanding of the word apostle is one who is sent. So Paul is saying, I have, as a slave of King Jesus, been sent. For what? Set apart for the gospel of God. The word gospel means simply good news. So stepping back from uh, verse 1 and the details of it, we essentially have a man saying, my name is Paul. I'm a slave of King Jesus. I have been sent by him to tell the good news of God. And then he goes on to describe that good news, first in terms of a promise, and second in terms of a person. Look at verse 3. This is the good news, he says, um, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 2, promised beforehand. What he's saying is that the content of what they would have experienced and understood to be their Bible, which for us would be the Old Testament. He's saying the content, the backbone, the narrative structure, theme of the Old Testament is is Jesus, this one that I have been set apart and sent to proclaim the good news concerning. So the, the word that I have for you is not something that has just come out of the blue. It is not just parachuted disconnected from everything else into the world in which we live. This is really the root of the scriptures that you and I have studied our entire lives in what, again, we would process as being the Old Testament. So he speaks of the gospel, the good news that he is proclaiming as being a promise, but then he says it is also to be understood as a person because it is the good news, verse 3, concerning his son. And what he's about to do is to use the prophecies of the Old Testament as a guideline for for building up the, the case for Jesus Christ being the one that he will go on to say that he is. So he says, this is the good news which has been promised in the Old Testament concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He's saying this good news of Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you is is about one who entered human history in the lineage of King David, which establishes him as royalty and justifies his calling Jesus King or Christ. He was descended from David according to the flesh, and then it says, and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the resurrection of holiness Uh, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. So he's saying he was in his human nature king, a descendant of David. But through the resurrection, we see that he is also God. This Jesus, who I have been sent by God to give you the good news concerning, is both king and and God. He has just laid it all out about what he believes about Jesus in these initial sentences and will unpack it the rest of the book. But now having said the good news is a, is a promise and a person, he begins to talk about the, the implications of this good news. And so in verse 5, he says, this Jesus Christ our Lord is one through whom we have received grace. Man, when Christians hear the word grace, 
we just immediately begin to think about our salvation, about how we are unworthy, how we do not deserve the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, when we hear grace, we say that's what it's all about. And Paul, in a sense, is speaking about his salvation here. But, but think of, understand the word grace in the context, context of Paul's world. It, it could easily be translated gift. And so he says that through this Jesus Christ, he has received a gift and apostleship. He has received a mission, a gift. He's, he's talking about his mission from King Jesus, not in terms of a slave just having to do what he's been ordered to do, but as a gift. He has been given his apostleship. He has been sent as a gift. And the purpose of that gift is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He says, this gift of a mission I have been given is for the purpose of taking this good news that my life is all about to the rest of the world, to not just the Jewish world, but all of the world, and then to remind them of the personal benefit they've experienced because of that. He says these nations who have been reached for the gospel include you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are the beneficiaries of this mission that I have been gifted by God to receive. And so, I mean, you talk about an introduction. I mean, he's just, he's laid out who he is and he's laid out what he's all about, and he's laid out why he's about all he's all about. He, he is he is doing all of this so that everyone can have the experience with Jesus that he himself has had. And then he just does Paul stuff, you know. I mean, having just comet and and clawed himself to death. He says, "Oh, by the way, hello." Verse seven. To those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be the saints, the churches in Rome, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I'd ride the bus home, and I lived in the country, which meant that it was always an adventure, and I'd get home, parents would ask, what'd you learn today? And usually, honestly, very little. I mean, I, you can look at me. I'm not necessarily the person that's going to pay the best attention in class. In fact, I didn't help anybody around me pay attention in class. I kid you not, not super proud about this. As a grown man in seminary, I had a professor throw an eraser at me. <laughs> so, um, I'm not kidding. I mean, I, it really legitimately happened. I have witnesses. Parents would say, what would you learn today? Well, if you see somebody this afternoon, Tell them you went to church. They might ask you, what would you learn today? What would you learn in church today? Here's what I hope you can tell them. We learned that there was this man named Paul who considered himself to be a slave of King Jesus who had been sent by King Jesus to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the entire world. I hope you can tell them that. But there's another question that we should always ask because Christianity is not just about learning. It's about it's about obedience. You remember that phrase that we 
came across, we didn't really deal with it. He, he says that he was endeavoring to bring about the, the obedience to, of the nations. It's not just that he was saying that I am bringing people to salvation. He's saying there is, there is an o- obedience aspect to faith in Jesus where we are obeying King Jesus. So, I mean, there's a piece of this that we have to say, okay, what do I do with this? So, so if somebody were to say, what did you do with it? What would you say? Learning today about a man named Paul who was a slave to King Jesus, whose mission it was to share the gospel with everybody in the world, what would you say that you're going to do with that? If I was asked the question, who would you want to be if you could be anybody in the world? (laughs) Depending on the day, I might say anybody else. (laughs) But if you were to ask me that question, I would stop and think about it. I'd say it'd have to be a blend. It'd have to be a blend of the intellect and the passion of a person like John Piper and the winsomeness and the communication ability of a person like Charles Swindoll, who even at 86 years old, for my money, is the best preacher walking and talking on planet Earth right now. If I could somehow be a blend of those two, that's who I'd be. And so I've always been a big fan of Swindoll's preaching. And I had a congregant at the Ridgeview campus email me a Swindoll sermon. And I just, I can't help but watch it. So I, I, I watched a little bit of it. It happened to actually be, I think, a sermon he delivered on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And he started it in a classic Swindoll way. Memorable statement. He said, the two most important days of anyone's life are the day they were born and the day they figure out why. Think about that. The two most important days of anyone's life, the day they were born, the day they figure out why. And as I thought about that, with apologies to Swindoll, I think Jesus' followers can adapt that in this way. The two most important days of anyone's life, the day they were born and the day they figure out why, except for a follower of Jesus, those both happen on the same day when we're called out of death into life and we're born again. The day we're born again, we figure out why. And some of us may be saying, well, I think I must have missed that. Because I, I don't know why. why. Why I have been born again. And I get that you don't know why you have been born again. I, I have been in vocational ministry for 35 years and I've been a follower of Jesus for over 40 years and looking at my own life and the things I say and the things that I sometimes will trumpet as being important and listening to you talk about the things you say and the things that you find uh, to be important. I, I get that we don't really know why. Why? Why have we been born again and we might think, man, I wish I could have the clarity Paul had. Paul knew he had been sent by God to take the gospel to the nations. Well, hang on, folks. That's why you were born again, too. Paul had a unique aspect to it, clearly. But the same reason that Paul was born again is the same reason that you and I have been born again. It is to Make our lives singularly about the gospel of Jesus. And not just the experience of the gospel in salvation, but the sharing of that gospel with everyone else. If we would grasp 
how the gospel must be the singular theme and focus of our lives, it would cause us to see that our entire life has been ordered by a sovereign God to platform us in the best possible way to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the reason that you and I were born again in the first place. If we could grasp that, it would help you view the job you hate differently. It would help you understand the marriage that you sleepwalk through and, if honest, sometimes resent differently. It would for sure cause you to parent differently. Understanding that the gospel is the most important need and task of your child. Look, I get, totally, totally get how as parents we want to provide the best possible experiences for our kids. I get that. Julie and I did that when our kids were home, and we did that the way a lot of Johnson County parents do it. We did it around sports. I mean, we were loving watching our kids compete and going to and seeing the joy and the character building that they got. I, 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 don't, I don't resent or fault any of that, but here's what I, I thought about today when I was on my way to work. Caleb hadn't taken a snap on a football field in seven years since his senior year of college. Abby has not swung a golf club competitively for eight years since her senior year in high school. Those things are rapidly receding into the past, and it makes me humbled to understand that we never lost sight of the fact that these years later, they're spouses. And in Caleb's case, a parent. And they're workers. And they're neighbors. And they're members of the church. We never, as a family, lost sight that that was the end game. They were not born again to play football or play golf. They were born again to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with their world. Folks, do you get what I'm saying? If we will latch on to the truth that we are born again for the gospel, it will fundamentally change everything about our lives. So, as people maybe who have been born again for quite some time, how do we reclaim that sense of purpose? Let me give you two things. And by the way, two things, and we're, we're done real quick here. Everybody gauges and marks time by how quickly you fill in blanks sometimes, and you're thinking, man, we're not going to get out of here until kickoff. I promise. We're going to be done here in just a second. But let me give you two things. Number one, to reengage this purpose the first thing you need to do is rejoice in the gospel message. The message of your salvation. Do you recognize that there's not a single person here that is worthy or deserving of the salvation that we have been offered in Christ? 
Do you really, really get that? Paul understood that people could give lip service to that but really feel differently. So he does a little rhetorical dirty trick early on in the book of Romans. When we get to verse 18, he'll begin to kind of unpack these, these sins that sinners do. And he drops little hints in there to let them know I'm really talking about everybody. But you know when you get a self-righteous head of steam, you can overlook your own junk. And he knew that that's what was going on. People were overlooking their own junk and they were focusing on the sins of other people. And oh, those sinners. Yes, they deserve the wrath of God. Then in chapter 2 he says, but you. And he flips it on them. And it reminds them that while no one may be innocent, no one's worthy either. No one's worthy of the gospel. I deserve hell. And I'm not saying that to make a rhetorical point. I'm telling you that the fundamental truth of my life as revealed and told on the pages of Scripture and of every single human life is that what we deserve is hell. But the grace of God redeems us and takes unworthy creatures and makes them the children of God. When's the last time you just sat quietly and reflected on the depths of the grace you have been shown? If we, if we do that more, there would start to be a combustion that would happen in our spirit that would force us to do what Christians have become far too excellent at doing, and that is shutting our mouth about the gospel. So rejoice in the gospel message, and then having done that, with that power and that, that enthusiasm and that passion and that awe in you, commit to the gospel mission. Understand that your job is God's ordained platform for you to advance the gospel, that your marriage is God's ordained platform for you to advance the gospel, that your opportunity to parent, and now at my stage, to grandparent, is about an opportunity to advance the gospel. Your house, where you live, is God's platform for you to advance the gospel. If we will build our lives understanding that the moment that we were born again, we learn why, and that is to make disciples to reach the people around us for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then everything about our lives and everything about our church changes. There's no other reason that any of us are drawing breath, be it a religious professional like a preacher or an engineer. There's no other reason that we're drawing a breath except to tell the next person about Jesus. The gospel is everything.